tried to run away from me. So I hit him with my shoe again! How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. Never mind that stuff. Take a car. Ah? Uh, what do I do with the car? You can keep it. I've got 51 left. <laughs> <laughs> the Cult-Worthy Classic. A cinema podcast dedicated to obscure film and cult classics made before 1970. Your host, Antonio Palacios, and a weekly guest will deep dive into these films to prove that they are in fact cult-worthy. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Antonio Palacios. I'm your host. This is episode three. And when we think of film noir, we are often reminded of the classics that define the genre. The Big Sleep, The Maltese Falcon, Double Indemnity, and the like. They usually follow the same tropes. You've got a tough guy, detective, insurance officer, whatever, who meets a gorgeous femme fatale who uses her feminine wiles to exploit said tough guys into doing her bidding, all with rather unfavorable results. However, there is one film of this genre that stood apart, and in doing so became one of the most influential film noirs of all time. Picture a film where nobody wins, where the femme fatale is less femme and double the fatale. A film where our hero isn't a gumshoe or a tough guy, he's just a guy who lets his guard down. And what if our hero wasn't even a hero at all, but a down-on-his-luck schmuck with absolutely no balls? who suddenly decides to grow a pair and quickly regrets it as decision after decision leads him further into disaster. That film, my friends, is 1945's Detour. Written by Martin Goldsmith and directed by noir legend Edgar G. Ulmer, this low-budget and bare-bones thriller redefined what a film noir could be, and while still drastically underseen, it has become hailed and appreciated by cult film experts like Danny Peary and filmmakers like Joe Dante and Vim Vendors, who said that Anne Savage's terrific performance was 30 years ahead of its time. Now, at a brisk 70 minutes, this film is a cult-worthy classic destined for rediscovery. And today, I have my friend Ian Graham of the Cult Connections podcast joining me to talk it up. So, enough of my nonsense. Let's start the show. Okay, and we are here with Ian Graham of Cult Connections Podcast, one of my favorite podcasts out on all the different platforms that's dedicated to cult cinema. Ian, how are you? I'm, I am really well. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for jumping on, being my third guest on episode number three. And I really feel like we're starting to make some headway in how we're discussing these old films, these classic films, I like to call them, and determine if they're cult-worthy because Detour, not a really well-known film, but highly influential, I would say, in noir and especially low-budget noir of the day. What did you think about this movie? Yeah, it wasn't, uh, I'd, I'd heard of it or it was a name that I'd known. I can't say I had watched it until you put it forward. Funnily enough, I, I was more familiar with, there's a, there's a sort of remake of it, a, a semi sort of remake there that came out, I think in the 90s. And uh, so I was more familiar with that film, but 
I think as well it's it's um it's definitely worthy and I think as we go on we're gonna gonna see why but awesome awesome so before we jump into this let's hear a little bit about your let's say cinematic history and what brought you to create the cult connections podcast um so it's very much so for me I am a a fan I'm not a I have no cinematic skills. I'm not. I'm not a journalist. I'm not. I'm nothing like that. I'm just an ordinary guy who who loves to watch watch films. But for me, um, and starting podcasting is just something you just want to be. They're sort of creative, and you want to do something with the things that you are actually. Uh, they're sort of passionate about, and one of the great things that I found. So I have a their guest on every every week. So it's someone they're different every week. Um, and I'm I'm often sort of guided by what they like. So, you know, it, it might be a, a sort of a, a sort of passionate their sort of topic for them. And what it's done for me and and uh, and what I really love about it is it is it's actually it's widened my uh, their sort of viewing. So I'm watching things that I probably wouldn't have watched. So I love that. That's just you know the best part of it. I think so. Absolutely, and. I'm not going to lie, you were one of the inspirations for me to feel more comfortable about being a host because I'm already on episode 32 or 33 of my other show, which is more of an exposure show where I am just kind of covering four films. I try to mix it up. I'll do like two films that I think people recognize and maybe haven't mm -hmm. seen in a while and want to jump back and revisit those. And then also expose shows that may not be as well known in you know the, the climate of today, either that were buried in VHS bins or in the bowels of streaming apps that are worth a discovery. I never really thought about doing a hosted show and listening to your show, having those guests on every week, I was like, you know what? This would be a better format to talk about these classical films that are too important and I think too influential to blast through in an eight minute review like I do on my other show. So I got to tell you, like you, you really were an inspiration to me into doing this hosted format. So thank you for that. Oh well, you're very <laughs> welcome. Thank you very much. I think you're right. It's it's the the conversations that we have. I think one of my favourite bits about um, the pod podcasting is meeting people. You know, talking to new people. You know, expanding your uh, their 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 horizons and sort of tastes and things like that. I think that's the best. You you know, for me, that's what I've loved. Uh, they're about it and connecting with the people all over there the world as well it's like i'm i'm sitting here in uh, their scotland the amazing thing that i found my audience is mostly in uh the, the california for some reason yeah mine too um, <laughs> yeah, but that just it amazes me i'm like who's who's there sitting there uh and in in the day the morning as i know it is there just now and uh you know listening to this uh, you know, Scottish guy, they're talking about films. It's, uh, you know, absolutely brilliant. Well, I tell you, I had never listened to any podcasts out of uh, the UK, that side of the world, but you and a podcast called Podcast of the Damned, the, they do a bunch of horror films. Mm -hmm. I'm now just addicted to Scottish murders, a bunch of these podcasts from across the pond, <laughs> because everyone sounds like me over here and it's kind of boring sometimes like they have to bring some good content scottish murders and folks like you you could be talking about pudding recipes and i'm intrigued i will listen to the whole thing so so how about we jump into this now detour
what you're going to hand me even before you open your mouths. You're going to tell me you don't believe my story and give me that don't-make-me-laugh expression on your smug faces. Look, I'll tell you what. You stay put out there, I'll come to you. Let's get married right away. How far are you gone? L.A. Not many people stop for a guy these days. Afraid of a stick-up, maybe. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. Now, wait a Shut minute. Up. You're a cheap crook and you killed him. So what else was it to do but hide the body and get away in the car? Even if you did tell the cops I was in on it with you, what could they do to me? I can't believe that you're in love with me. Are you Charles Haskell, Jr.? Yes. There was no time to lose. Every minute I had to be Charles Haskell was dangerous. Hey, you, this your car? By that time, I'd done just what the police would say I did, even if I didn't. Maybe it's a good thing you met me. You'd have got yourself caught, sure. Whichever way you turn, fate sticks out a foot to trip you. It's a classic film noir trope, but it has a lot of noir qualities that aren't really found in most of the films of that genre. And we can dive into this a little bit further, but one of the things I think is most recognizable about this film is the dynamic of the so-called femme fatale and your protagonist. Your protagonist, Al, played by Tom Neal, who never really had much of a leading man career after this. He was in a lot of B pictures. He was usually that guy that would get killed in a TV episode. But I think he does a great job here. His protagonist is not like what you would see in most film noir genre films. Like, he's not really a tough guy. He's not a detective. He doesn't really have anything to offer the femme fatale. He's pretty much just down on his luck with nothing in his pockets. And then you've got the femme fatale, so to speak, played by Anne Savage. She has no desirable qualities like a classic femme fatale has. He doesn't want her romantically. She really has nothing to offer. If anything, she is a full-on villain. And so that's why I really thought this film has like this kind of cult-worthy classic vibe in the sense that it is not your standard film noir of femme fatale with all this beauty and seduction and then this protagonist that falls for her. It's almost two down-on-their-luck people of two different personality types kind of in this intertangled web of lies and suspicion. Uh, 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 yeah, you're absolutely right. And there's no, there is no romance there at all. There's no this sort of attraction there's no sort of redeemable uh, qualities, to be honest, about either of them. A little bit for um, the Al, but even then, he's not—he's not unsort of likable, but he's not a character that you would sort of get uh, there behind, as it were. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't—I wouldn't be rooting for him. That's what I would say. So, but you're absolutely right. I think think as well, and I know obviously we will sort of talk about about this a bit more as we go on. But the Savage is not. Um, or certainly in this film, she's not a, a sort of beauty. There isn't any sort of glamour there. She's got lots of rough sort of edges. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, it was quite sort of noticeable, even when she tries to sort of make herself up, she still looks a bit sort of dodgy, as it were. She's not a, she's not a lady you would a hugely warm sort of to. So, um, and I really liked that because it was so sort of different. Yes, and it's well played too. Like that again is is an actor's an actor's dream. I would think if I was in that role, 
if you're someone who's used to being cast as the beauty and the helpless female in every film, and then you get this chance in 1946 to play this salty character who has so much depth to her. And there's a lot of questions that remain unanswered with her, her character in the film. Mm-hmm. Obviously she's suffering from some kind of illness. We're led to think that she has TB or some kind of debilitating illness. That's going to take her. Eventually she has a line in the car when she's trying to plot with, with, uh, with Al about, Oh, if the hangman gets to me first, as if she knows that her death is coming, which I think is one of the reasons why she's so ballsy with this plan. She has nothing to lose if it fails. <laughs> and there's a danger in that. And if you're familiar with this genre and see what the writers are trying to do, you can actually see that that is more terrifying than the police. For Al, he's now dealing with someone with nothing to lose, and sometimes there's nothing more dangerous than that. I think you're absolutely right, yeah. And um, and it's such a, a feel, you know, watching a film which is now nearly 80 years old and watching it and and thinking how, how sort of modern uh, her sort of character seems. Mm-hmm. You know, there is... There is sort of depth or, the, or there are sort of reasons to sort of drive her forward why she's actually doing what she is. You know, she's not a, you know, she's not a typical Hollywood sort of character of, no. of that uh, that sort of time. And it did, I found it really sort of striking because I was I was almost waiting for for certain things to happen mm-hmm. and and it didn't that was the thing and that and that's what was really good about and it's a brisk movie it's like barely 100 minutes it's uh they they do a lot with what i like to call the economy of storytelling they mm-hmm. don't have a lot of resources it's a low budget film and it looks it and that's what kind of adds to the rawness of it it almost reminds me and it's interesting because the screenwriter martin goldsmith he also did a few twilight zone episodes so I think that there is this thing about, you know, back when they were doing these these serials, obviously this was probably meant to be a double feature with something, a shorter mm-hmm. runtime film that you can throw in there. You have to be really economical with your storytelling and your filmmaking, almost the way TV movies are. Like there's a lot of great TV movies from like the 70s and 80s that fit so much story into a 70 minute runtime because they have to they have to make room for commercials they have to make room for the news coming up at 10 and i think that's one of the reasons why this movie plays so well because if it was made in modern times with a 90 minute runtime i think we would lose a lot of that energy that the characters have with each other and that's one of the things that makes this film so i think tense is that you've got pretty much 45 minutes of these two once they're introduced to get all this story out and to really get them hating each other in a battle of wits and wills for survival. I think it, you know, for me, it, it actually shows that, you know, these days and films are so long. Mm. Um, I mean, please bring back a 90 minute run there time for me. That's, <laughs> you know, that's a favorite of mine. Uh, one hour, 45 minutes maximum. Thank, yeah. thank you very much. But you're absolutely right. It's, it, it sort of crams in so much or it, um, the the pacing of it feels so uh, they're sort of fresh in a way how it how how it moves forward really quickly mm-hmm. without any anything sort of surplus. I don't feel like I'm actually missing out. Right. Um. You know what would we have more scenes of sort of driving through through the desert and you know we don't really need that. We, we don't, don't need too much of it. It just get it gets to the point and you know and how many films do we watch where uh, you know you're waiting for the big thing there to happen. You're waiting for uh, you know a certain their event that's been you know teased in in the the 
trailers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this film, you know, it's it's there fairly much from the start. So to give the listeners just a quick synopsis, Al is a jazz piano player and he is in love with this woman named Susan and she is the singer for this band that he plays for. And it's like a really low grade nightclub. Obviously, no one's making a lot of money. The patrons of the bar don't seem too enthused. They're just there to drink. And he's fallen for her they have this relationship that we're really not introduced to deeply. We don't know how long they've been together, how connected they are. All he knows mm-hmm. is that he wants to marry her, even though he has nothing. And she's like, nope, you got no money. I have a future. I'm young. I'm going to go to Hollywood and try and make it there. And she pretty much takes off the next day. Like, she's like, bye, see ya. <laughs> and we're introduced, to, we're introduced to a deeper side of Al where, like, he seems like a level-headed guy through all of his inner monologues that he has, that classic noir inner monologue. He's pretty much narrating the film for us. There's a scene right at the beginning after she's left where he starts playing his piano in the jazz club, and he starts playing it faster and faster and faster. That's the way he's getting his aggression out. And for the first time, he's actually being recognized by the patrons because by playing so quickly, he's showing his skill. He starts getting tips, and he starts getting appreciations from the crowd. And the guy hands him a $10 bill, and his response was, a $10 bill, a piece of paper with a bunch of germs on it. Like, he can't even appreciate the fact that he just got tipped, probably for the first time in his career there. And that's just enough to drive him to make this cross-country trek with no money to hitchhike across the country to Hollywood to be with this girl who may or may not actually love him but it's just enough to drive him. You know what, funny you should say that, because I, I was watching it and I was thinking, you know, first of all, and when she says it, so when, I think it says Sue, isn't it? That's that's yes. the name of his girlfriend, fiance, fiance. And, like, and, I, and I was watching it and I'm like, you know, go with her, you know, just do it, do it, do it, do it. And of course he doesn't there do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's almost a, a sort of weakness to him you know and that he's not he's not sort of bold enough and we see that late later on there's another event that there happens uh there later and i'm like why would you do that yeah you, know, you could have done something else why do you do that that's the biggest question of this film is like why did you do that why was that your decision yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah or why did you not do that it's like come on but um that for me was the big you know sort of moment just to start with because afterwards you can see the talent you can see he's got it yeah uh you know he's playing some some lovely jazz there and you know, like you say, the audience are, are really liking it. I was really liking it. I thought it was great. But it is, it's like, you know, you could be doing so much more, mm-hmm. um, but he doesn't. He could have gone with Sue. Yeah. And things could have been very sort of different. Yeah. And But when he finally makes his mind up, it, it all goes wrong for him. Yeah. He feels like a guy who's never really taken a chance in his life. And there's an interesting thing about when he decides to go to Hollywood And I don't know if it was just cut this way or if it was written this way. I would love to find the original screenplay for this. He calls Sue out in Hollywood, and you don't hear their conversation. You just see the reaction in his faces. He asks her, should I come out there and see you? And if I do, should we get married? You don't hear her answer. It cuts to her just holding the phone in her bed, but she doesn't say anything. So Mm -hmm. me, I like to deconstruct everything. I want to know what she said. Did she just say maybe and he's going out there on a maybe or did she say yes come out here so that created a level of tension for me that i wasn't expecting where it's like is he making this journey across the country 
for a maybe or a let's yeah. see, you know? And then again, that would just add one more level of despair to this poor guy's story because this guy's story sucks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Is it, is it, is it actually doomed from the very start? You know, that's the thing, yeah. And he is, and he's traveling, and it's like, mm, yeah. Yeah, so he starts making his way across the country, hitchhiking, car to car, town to town, and he ends up in a little coop with a guy named Haskell, who's kind of a shady character right from the start. We really have no reason not to trust him other than what the guy explains, what Al explains in his narration. But the guy seems okay. He's paying for his meals as long as Al takes a turn driving part of the way. And while they're in the car, he starts talking about this female passenger that he kicked out of his car earlier down the road, saying, oh yeah, she was a nightmare and I ditched the dame back in, you know, the last town. I guess at least an hour passed before I noticed those deep scratches in his right hand. They were wicked. Three puffy red lines about a quarter of an inch apart. He must have seen me looking at them because he said, Beauties, aren't they? They're gonna be scars someday. What an animal. Whatever it was, it must have been pretty big and vicious to have done that. Right on both counts, New York. I was tussling with the most dangerous animal in the world, a woman. She must have been Tarzan's mate. Looks like you lost the bob. Certainly wasn't a draw. You know, there ought to be a law against dames with claws. Yeah. I tossed her out of the car in her ear. Was I wrong? Give a lift to a tomato, you expect it to be nice, don't you? Yeah. After all, what kind of a dame sunrise? It's kind of a throwaway line. We don't expect that line, that quick little story, to be essentially the biggest part of this film, the biggest plot driver. It's a throwaway line, but mm -hmm. it's there. Because Al just kind of shrugs his shoulders like, oh, yeah. Dames. <laughs> he's taking this travel, he's taking this journey with Al. We start hearing in his inner monologue that he's starting to finally feel good about his decision. He's like, look at me, I'm doing this. And he's driving the car, it's raining, and he's like, well, I better put the top up. So they pull over to the side. Haskell, who's asleep on the passenger seat, won't wake up because he needs Al needs help to put the top on the car because it's raining. He's like, I'm going to wake this guy up. I need to put the top up. He's shaking him. He won't wake up. He opens the door. Haskell falls out of the car and strikes his head on a rock. Al thinks he's killed him. Mm -hmm. This is my question. Was Haskell already dead? What do you think? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, my first thought uh, that Haskell was already dead. You know, I mean, I don't know about, about yourself, but I mean, no matter how much of a heavy sleeper you are, <laughs> you're going to wake up if someone's uh, shaking you. Mm -hmm. or, or if you're lying, then, or if you are, you're in your car, and it's and it's absolutely pelting it down. I mean, it is raining. Come on. You know, you're going to wake up. So I, I, I did actually think he was already dead. So I like to call this, um, I had a teacher back in my film history class years ago. He called situations like this a reverse MacGuffin. You know what the MacGuffin is, right? That Alfred Hitchcock would use, the unexplainable plot driver. It was usually like a device or something that was talked about but never explained. Exactly, Th yeah. This is a reverse one because there really is no device that drives a plot. It's something that's kind of like an inverted idea of like, well, is this guy already dead? Was Al really responsible for his accidental death if he was already mm -hmm. dead? They don't explain yeah. it. It's just something to kind of sit there and drive you crazy because Al is definitely now torn up about this and it causes him to make a series of wrong decisions as we will discuss in the future. But yeah. again, 
If he was already dead, that just adds to the tension of this story. So, like you said, Al makes this terrible decision. This whole film, he's always justifying his terrible decisions. And his justification for this is, I'm a loner on the road with no money. This guy seems kind of shady. Someone's already been in his car, so they would know that he was picking up hitchhikers. If they find his body on the road and I don't have a way to get out of here, if they catch me down the road, they're going to assume that I did it. So my best option is to hide the body, take his money, take his car, drive to Los Angeles, ditch the car, and just live my life. That's, in his mind, his best decision. Yeah. Now, now, I don't want to make any any sort of judgments on on the... Um... Uh, they're sort of police in the Nevada. I take it they are. I think that's yeah. I think they're in Nevada, but on the yeah, because they have to hit the state line. Yeah, I mean, I know we see lots of sort of media stories about the uh, their sort of police over in uh, the the states and some of the things that they maybe don't do quite so well. They they when it comes to sort of things like this, but I'm like, why don't you just flag them down or or, wait, <laughs> or give them a phone and explain what happened? Right, <laughs> you know, it's like, come on. You know why? Why do it? Why make your why make your situation even worse? So, you know, we know he's not guilty, but you know, hiding the body and they're taking his car is going to make you look even more more guilty than than you might do already. So why why make it worse for yourself? But he he does it. He makes the situation worse. I feel that you know that just kind of plays on his character of being such a weak person because. I'm not sure if you've ever done this, but like you can buy a bag of ice at the store. Usually it's outside by the entrance or the exit to the store and Uh you pay for it. You take your cart, you grab your ice and you go home. And there's been times where I forget to pay for the ice and I walk and I grab the ice. I'm like, oh my goodness, I forgot to pay for this. And me, I go back, here's a dollar or pay for it. But there's that moment where I'm like, I could just put this in my cart and no one would know the difference. I think that maybe he's got a little bit of that where he's like, I really need money. I really need to get to LA. I need to get there fast. Maybe this is the right decision. Like a decision he would never make in his life all of a sudden seems achievable. And he gets a little bit of energy from that because we see it throughout the film because the very Uh next scene is he's at the state line of Nevada to California and he has to do the, the state inspection as he goes in. He's got Haskell's ID, and they kind of look alike. And back then, they didn't have uh, photographs on the driver's license. So all he knows is that he kind of has a similar build, similar you know skin color, fits the description on the, the driver's license. So the state inspection, they look at his car. They look at his ID. He answers the right questions. Yes, I'm Haskell. Yes, I'm coming from New York City. And they let him go. So now that has just added to his little boost of false confidence. He's like, oh, I just got away with two things. I just got this guy's body ditched (laughs) in the desert, and now I just fooled the cops. Things are going well for me. And you actually see him smile and feel good about himself, even though two terrible things he's just done. He actually, for the first time in his life, feels like he's accomplished something. Um, I just wanted to make an observation here about about this and this that scene actually where he is uh, stopped and he's uh, he's at the state lines that absolutely fascinated me because of obviously Britain's Britain's a small lake country and I was like oh but you actually you know it's almost like you have to go through sort of passport uh, uh their sort of control mm-hmm. there to cross their state lines or or you did back then and I was like if we had to do that here you would you would be stopped every every half an hour because mm-hmm. 
our our states are so small. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> I was absolutely fascinated by that as a as a British viewer. I was. Uh, I was like, really? You have to do that? I mean, I've never had to. I know that, like, you know, truckers and stuff like that have to because they have to, like, check their the weight of their, their freight and things like that. But yeah. who knows? I, I don't know. I'm not super familiar of the state line processes of the 1940s. But, you know, it's a good plot driver because, again, it, it, it tells us more about Al and who he is and who he thinks he can be. Just when he thinks that it's all sunshine and roses for him, we are introduced to Vera, played by Ann Savage. He... Again, oh, it's he is like seconds away from not picking her up. He's at the fill station. She's out on the side of the road, and his confidence is up. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to give this girl a ride. Where he could have easily just been like, man, I got to just book it to Los Angeles to see my girl. Why would he pick up this girl? Another a bad decision that Al makes. And she's not even nice to him asking for a ride. Like, she's... She's ferocious from the beginning. And the second she gets in the car and the second they start driving, you see in his face, and it's really well acted by him for being a B-movie actor and this being like a B-movie noir film, you see it in his eyes. He's like, oh, shit, what did I just do? So, yeah, yeah. She, she is a force of nature, isn't she? She's like, <laughs> she, would, she would eat any man alive, which she does, which, you know, she does there to, to Al because he keeps on doing stupid things for her yeah um, and i'm just like no come on but um yeah why why would you pick it up he's got he's got he's got the lovely sue mm-hmm. you know waiting for him we think you know you know get in the car and just go there and but no he's got uh, he's got to make another dumb uh <laughs> you know move hasn't he he's got to do that so she falls asleep right away as he's driving, and again, he's having this little inner monologue, and then she wakes up, and the minute she wakes up, she asks him, what did you do to the guy who owns this Where car? Where did you leave his body? Where did you leave the owner of this car? You're not fooling anyone. This buggy belongs to a guy named Haskell. That's not you, mister. You're out of your mind. That's my name, Charles Haskell. I can prove it. It's my driver's Save license. Save yourself the trouble, mister. Having Haskell's wallet only makes it worse. It just so happens I rode with Charlie Haskell all the way from Louisiana. He picked me up outside of Shreveport. You rode? You heard me. Then it all came back to me. All the talk about dueling and scars and scratches. There was no doubt about it. Vera must be the woman Haskell had mentioned. She must have passed me while I slept. Well? Well, I'm waiting. My goose was cooked. She had me. That Haskell guy wasn't dead yet. He wasn't stretched out stiff and cold in any Arizona gully. He was sitting right there in the car, laughing like mad while he haunted me. Well? There was nothing I could say. And he's like, what? He's like, this car belongs to a guy named Haskell. You're a cheap hood and you killed him, and I'm going to bleed you, or I'm going to turn you in to the police. And she's got, his, she's got her claws in him from that moment on. He negotiates with her and the idea is, okay, whatever cash I have from Haskell, we'll split and as soon as we get to LA, we'll sell this car and you can have that money, you go your way, I'll go mine. As we get to know her a little bit better, we know that like, yes, she's suffering some some kind of illness. This isn't the first time she's done this to a man. Obviously, she tried to do it to Haskell. She is just a hustler, who knows? I would love to see a film just about her backstory, where her point A was to you know yeah. her her point B and C, which this film covers. But 
there is some history to her that I think is probably more interesting than this whole film itself. There's the there is an interesting line when when Haskell first picks Al up and uh, and he says something like, you know, he picked up uh, Vera and he's talking about that and it's almost like, you know, she wouldn't have give out to him, you know, she wasn't going to put out, uh, so so she got. Uh, the the boot as it were and I'm like and like Haskell himself isn't you know so basically I mean you know this film is 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 a two-hander first of all Al and uh, they're sort of Haskell and then um Al and um Vera Haskell is not a likable uh, their sort of man you know you can see that and I was almost like did he try and rape her did he try and do something nasty with her probably um yeah, haha. And I'm just like, and would you blame the Vera? She's like, no, I'm gonna get what I'm, you know, what 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 she thinks she she they deserves. And fair enough, in a way. I don't blame her to be honest. Honestly, and there is a line a little bit later when Al starts again, he's it's a series of these um validations of his decisions. He actually says to himself in his mind, he's like, Sounds like this Haskell guy was a chiseler. Now I don't feel so bad about him being dead. Like, that's how he's kind of justifying and validating what happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As he hears more about it, he's like, oh, well, I don't feel so bad now that, you know, even though I accidentally killed him, which, again, this film kind of, like, plays on the idea, even he starts second-guessing himself. He's like, "Did I? was that an accident? He says it's hard to explain to the police. They would never believe him. It almost sounds like he's convincing himself that he's not even believing himself that it was an accident. You know, who's to say? We've already seen in this film that there are these kind of like missing spots of storytelling that may be intentional. Like I said, that phone call with Sue where we don't hear her answer. Maybe there is a scene that they're not showing us that we're supposed to mm-hmm. like maybe second guess what Al's intentions really are. And that's why I like this movie. Like I said, the economy of storytelling by letting us feel things by not showing them and by not explaining them. I think that this mm-hmm. film does that masterfully. You know, when you talk about that and things may be missing, but I think one of the great things about about films and and the, the way that a good film grabs you is that is that you think about it for days afterwards. Yes. Um, now I watched this last week, and I and I and I thought about parts of this film, you know, probably every day since. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you're right, there are gaps there, and it's like, well, but that's a great thing. You like the film so much that that those gaps actually stay with you, and you mm-hmm. start to fill them in. Uh, they yourself yep. so that's really testament just to how how good this one is absolutely they make it to la and the plan is to sell the car so they take it to a dealership very i mean this is like 15 years before psycho but kind of the same thing like oh we got to sell this car right quick do a quick inspection he goes into the office to make the paperwork and they ask him for his insurance which he doesn't have and he doesn't know about so mm. he feels like he's been caught at the same moment, Vera's going through the glove compartment and sees that Haskell has a father who is about to pass away, and there's a newspaper article saying they're looking for this long-lost son who will be getting the inheritance, and that long-lost son is Haskell, and that's why he was driving cross-country to L.A., so he could pick up this inheritance. And Vera, being as conniving and, um, (laughs) I'm not going to say smart, but ballsy for sure as she is, she starts calculating this. She's like, oh, well, this guy's already gotten halfway across the country posing as Haskell. Let's take this game a step further. So she busts into the office. She grabs Alan's like, we're not selling this car. We're getting out of here. 
And so he is just completely downtrodden. He's like, I was almost rid of this girl, and now what? They get in the car and start driving, and then she explains the plan. She's like, listen, we're going to wait for this father to die. You're going to show up. Say you're the son. You're going to get the inheritance, and we're going to split it 50-50. And he's like, that's impossible. I, To be fair, I, I am with Al on this one because this is a stupid idea. Mm-hmm. And I don't care how sort of desperate you are. There's no way this one's going to work. Um, you're not going to pull it off. He should have just uh, cut his losses then and there and been like, police, (laughs) I killed a guy. (laughs) (laughs) I think so, yeah, (laughs) because it's just getting getting worse and worse. I'm like, there's no way you could ever. Mind you saying that, who knows, you know, true sort of crime shows us that people get away with all sort of kinds of of their crazy stuff. But um... yeah, and they also don't, though, like. People get busted on like the most simplistic <laughs> ideas and dumbest ideas. There's a great one, actually. There's a brilliant one just uh, just last week. So um, over here, there was a guy who physically took his uh, dead uncle to the um, their post office. So so <laughs> so they're the bank to claim his his uh, uh, their pension, uh, their sort of money. Uh, the guy was actually dead. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but I mean, he tried on, a weekend at Bernie's him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, genius. So then we jump into the third act, and the third act is is pretty short, and it's almost all in one location. But to me, it is the the cream of this film. So like the last twenty minutes of this film pretty much all takes place in a motel room. It's her trying to convince him to get through with this, and he's second-guessing it the whole time. But while they're spending this evening in the hotel room, we see a different side of her. Like, she's been this kind of road mall this whole time. You know, she's, like, wearing the same dress. She doesn't care about her looks. She just wants to get from point A to point B. But now she sees money in her future, And again, she has got nothing to lose. Who knows how long she's been on the road? Who knows what her relationships have been in the past? What her idea of men even is? She gets dolled up and she looks gorgeous. And she's like, you know what, Al, you and me, baby, we're going to tie one on. We're going to get drunk and we're going to have a fling before we go do this tomorrow. Almost as if in her mind... This might be her last fling ever, because if this fails, she's going to jail. And if she doesn't go to jail, she seems like she's pretty intent on passing away soon anyway. So for again, mm-hmm. that whole idea of nothing to lose, she's going to just throw this out there. The problem is Al has zero passion, desire, or interest in her. He loves Sue. He's disgusted by her. But they are in this intimate relationship that is beyond sex. It's beyond any kind of emotional bonding. It's about money and it's about potential death and potential life imprisonment. Having a one night stand with somebody is not going to, going to affect your life forever as what they are about to do will. And I think mm-hmm. there's a, a deeper intimate connection there and that frightens him. And so they have this, this argument where she's like, well, I pretty much, she's like, I want you to get in bed with me and he's like, absolutely not. I'm leaving. Well, if you leave, then I'm calling the cops and we'll both go to jail. It's just putting him in this situation that he doesn't know to handle because, A, he's not smart enough. All these false senses of ideas of courage that he's had throughout the film, he doesn't know where to take that the next step. He just can't calculate it well enough. 
It's um, it's absolutely fascinating what you say about this final third of the film because you know up to this point there's still been a way way where you thought oh you know they could get out of it you know things could sort of change uh, you might have a vaguely happy ending as it were but but you're right they're in um, they're the hotel room and they're stuck there and it's like all of the everything that's brought them there and now they are actually sort of trapped and that's it. And it's not a hotel room. It's actually they're already in, in sort of prison. There's, they are stuck there. And it's a great way to show it as well. It's like, you know, we've been on, on, on the open road, and we've had, uh, you know, you know, you know, driving through vast, uh, this sort of land, they escape, and now we're actually stuck here. And this is this is the end game, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I've already told people spoilers. Uh, I played the trailer already. I've given them a couple <laughs> weeks to to watch this film. It's on YouTube. It's very accessible. The climax, as you will, is so simplistic yet devastating. Mm-hmm. She runs into the bedroom suite of this hotel room with the phone. And remember, she's drunk. She's she's there, but she's not all there. She's She's drunk. She's still smart and aware enough to be calculating. But I think she also has some common sense taken away from the fact that she's inebriated. She runs in there, and he grabs the phone cord to pull the cord out of the phone through the door. And he keeps pulling and pulling and pulling for about 45 seconds. Now, Ian, if I couldn't pull a phone cord out of a phone in 45 seconds, I would assume that something's not right. Hey, who's got a cord on your phone these days? Uh, Hey, it's like um, it's not. Um, It is great, though, isn't it? Yeah, and it is like, yeah, stop, stop there pulling. Something's not right here. But again, Um, like with the like with Haskell in the car, is he slightly aware of what may be happening? But because he's not intentionally doing it as like a forethought he still has this idea of like well what just happened because there's a struggle like the phone cord is struggling through the door and then it stops which prompts him to open the door to the bedroom suite and there we find her on the little sofa strangled to death with the phone cord so again we are left with this like reverse MacGuffin What was he really aware of what he was doing and is just kind of justifying it by playing ignorant? Regardless, he knows he's in trouble because now he's responsible for two deaths. He may have been able to explain the Haskell situation. There's no explaining Haskell and a strangled woman in a hotel room under his assumed name. No. <laughs> no, it's not it's not happening. He's not getting out out of this one is he so but that's what's great about it and i think as well you know you know film sort of noir as well but there often is uh there often is a more sort of clear-cut ending but it's so it's it's so sort of grim this one isn't it so it's really grim it's so yeah uh-huh. you know there's no there's no there's no happy ending there's no way you can get out of it at all so and that and that's really great for the time especially when we think about it made in the 1945 and you know which should have been a time for you know op- optimism you know the war had finished and mm-hmm. uh, and all that stuff but along comes this dark bleak 
uh, the sort of nihilistic, you know, story. And mm-hmm. uh, but we love those, you know, we absolutely love those 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 sort of films, and uh, and we still love them. So. Yeah. Well, they make them feel better about ourselves. They make them like, oh, whew, my life's not so yeah. bad, you know. This guy I'm, just. <laughs> I can't be that stupid. <laughs> thanks very much. <laughs> yeah, it's validating for us. And so the film ends kind of where it begins, because this does the the typical noir trope where the film starts at the end. We don't know it's the end until he starts doing his inner monologue. He walks into a roadside diner, and we're seeing a side of him that we haven't seen throughout the film. Like, he's aggressive right from the start. He walks in. He demands service. He tells a guy who's much bigger than him to turn off the jukebox so I can sit here and drink my coffee and reflect. Turn that off. Will you turn that thing off? What's eating you now? Yeah, what's eating you? That music, it stinks. Oh, you don't like it, huh? No, turn it off. Now, wait a minute, pal. That was my nickel, see? This is a free country. And I play whatever I wanted. Okay. Sure. And if you don't like it, you don't have to listen to it. And you can leave here anytime you want it. Okay, okay. I'm sorry I asked. First good piece played tonight, and you don't like it. Some people just ain't got any good taste. That tune. Why was there always that rotten tune? following me around, beating in my head, never letting up. Did you ever want to forget anything? Did you ever want to cut away a piece of your memory or blot it out? You can't, you know, no matter how hard you try. You can change the scenery, but sooner or later you'll get a whiff of perfume where somebody will say a certain phrase or maybe hum something. Then you're licked again. I can't believe that you're in love with me. I used to love that song once. So did the customers back in the old Break at Dawn Club in New York. I can't remember a night when I didn't get at least three requests for it. Sue, I think this is when we're actually seeing Al in his truest form. Because everything leading up to now, we've seen, let's say, Beta Al. We've seen the, the Al that's insecure and taking a chance and always afraid to take a chance. And now he is essentially Vera. He's got nothing to lose. His true emotions, his true colors show as he walks into this diner, sits down, has his coffee, and starts downloading us on all the events that have happened before. So now we skip to the end. He's in the diner, leaves, walks down the street, and his ending monologue is it's something in the lines of, one of these days, a car that I didn't call for is going to stop and pick me up. And as he's saying that, sure enough, a highway patrol car <laughs> pulls up to the side of the road. Cop comes out, escorts him into the back. He doesn't struggle. He knows it's done. Fade to black. Well, I I, I had actually read that this wasn't wasn't the original ending that they wanted. They, for me, I would have liked it if we'd just seen him heading down the, the, the road and we didn't find out what the, what sort of happened after. I would have liked it to be a bit more open-ended. You wanted to give yeah, him the... Some... <laughs> you wanted to give him the Shane ending. You wanted to... Have him like walk off into the sunset, and, and yeah, is he dead? Is he not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Who knows? I think that that for me would have worked slightly better, but I I did quite like that one. I mean, he was maybe just you know because we don't hear what what um the the cop says to him, so right. he might have been like, hey, hey, you're hitching. I'll I'll give you a ride into town. I'm going. I'm I'm going back to uh, the the station. 
right uh come along who knows i i don't know i think i'm being a bit too nice there but uh. well and like <laughs> i was i was talking about this with uh with nikki on the bad seat episode you know the production codes at the time you had to have the crime and punishment clause in in the mm-hmm. production code so you know maybe the ending was more open-ended and they're like nope the guy's got to face his consequences send the cops after him before we jump into some of like the uh the trivia and talking points of this film what would you say you would tell people who've never seen this what are your selling points about this film like what you enjoyed about it and why they should see it and why it should be cult worthy i think i i always like to think now now it's funny these days because um you know to me this is a this is a vintage film now Mm -hmm. and but for many people younger than me a vintage films from the the 1970s or, or the 1980s and i'm like Mm, okay that's that's not really a vintage film however but <laughs> what i would say is look if you want fast you know nihilistic nihilistic um, for sure <laughs> yeah yeah very well sort of paced fast moving sort of story that feels very modern in many ways i would absolutely say that's you know you know this is uh this was done almost 80 years ago and yeah. it still feels really really fresh Influential, like we've seen, we've seen shadows of this film in a lot of films since, both noirs of the past and even modern films today. I learned about this film back when I was a teenager from this. I'm not sure if you've got one of these, but this is Danny Perry's Cult Movies Volume One. I used to check Uh this out in the library when I was a teenager. (laughs) It was my favorite book, and I. Uh This is not the original library one. I I like to say I haven't stolen many things in my life, but I did steal that book. However, I did eventually pay for it in late fees, so I think that we are justified. <laughs> That's my owl thinking there. And my goal was back in the day to go through every single, and there's like four volumes of Danny Perry's cult books, but Detour right. is 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 in here, and that's how I first learned about it. I found the old VHS in my library in Salt Lake City, Utah when I was a teenager, and I watched it, and it didn't resonate with me as a teenager because, I mean... This is when The Matrix and Pulp Fiction and stuff like was still mm. big when I was out in the, mm-hmm. in the mid to late 90s. I hadn't really had my taste for vintage films yet. So I watched it. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. Whatever. Didn't watch it again for years until about a year ago I saw it pop up on Tubi. And I was like, oh, I remember this film. And I remember is in the Danny Perry book. So I went back and I reread the article about it. And I rewatched the film. And now it's like in my top 10. It's just it, it, of noir films. It's It's... Mm-hmm. Super influential, and I've seen so many movies since then that take so many pages out of this. And I'm not sure who coined the phrase, but it's a road noir film. You know, there's a bunch of these mm. films that take place on the road. So I would say like this, um, Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker, The Chase with Peter Lorre. They're all these noir mm-hmm. films that take place on the road, and they still make them today. Films like Duel, the Steven Spielberg film, Breakdown with Kurt Russell. Like there are these. This is a genre. Mm-hmm. It's not really recognized, yeah. but I consider it a genre. And a lot of them take a lot from this film. Yeah, this is it, and that's uh, and that's the thing. It's the lasting sort of legacy that this film has. So it's obvious, you know. I mean, I mean, they remade it for a start. That's that's the thing. I mean, that's uh, yeah, you know that that is a good sign. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You can see there the echoes from from this film and going on. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it gets remade again. Again, the, these days you know, they're remaking everything. So. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and 
one of the things that I mean, there there isn't a whole lot of information online about this film. Like there are some mm-hmm. little talking points. Most of them have to do with the budget, super low budget. It was the director's car, you know, Ulmer, and he did he did a lot of uh, B movie noir films around the same time. Didn't have much of a career after the fifties. Do get a lot out of what he he presented there. One of the things that Danny Perry talks about is there was a cutout scene, another thirty minutes roughly of this film that was shot but not used because they just couldn't finish the the budget mm-hmm. it would have been vera and al actually attempting to go through with the plan they actually mm-hmm. go to the father's house the father's passed away and it was this long complicated scene of al trying to convince the lawyers and the people in this house that he was actually haskell and him trying to kind of weasel out of it and run, but she's right there just pushing the story, pushing the narrative, and not letting him go. I'm glad that got cut out because as intriguing as it sounds, it plays much better the way it does with this economic style. Uh-huh. I think uh, that does make me think, though, because it could have been so cringeworthy in a yeah. way, as as in sitting there and thinking, oh, my God, is he actually going to try and do this? I would be like, no, no, don't do it, don't do it. It's such a stupid idea. Um, but can you imagine the, the tension of it? I think that's... Uh, yeah, on. I'm. I'm gonna have a good think about that now. Yeah, because something else that the film's left me with. That's the thing. I've, I've been, uh, you know, as I said earlier, great films. You think about them for days afterwards, and oh, yeah. yeah it I'm slightly reminds me. It slightly reminds me just the description of the scene that Danny Perry says. It slightly reminds me of the scene in King of Comedy where De Niro brings his girlfriend to Jerry Lewis's house. And just mm. stays there trying to convince her that he belongs there. And it's one of the most cringeworthy scenes in any film. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of that. I love this film. I would say, and I, I asked you to bring a, a double feature idea. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to let you go with yours first. If you were to pair this with a film and you were doing like a first time watch for somebody or, or having yeah. a double feature night at your house or your flat, however you say it out there, <laughs> what, uh, what would you pair with this film? So I'm gonna I I have gone with um a film I have actually talked about on on my show uh, and it is a Italian film funnily enough mm-hmm. um from 1977 which is called Hitchhike that's its English uh, their name um which stars Franco Nero and Corinne Beclery mm-hmm. uh, and again this is another road movie very very nihilistic. None of the characters are are likable in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as there's an Italian couple and they are traveling across their states on um, their vacation, and and their vacation goes goes wrong in many ways. I'm not going to spoil it. I haven't seen it. I'm going to look it up. And I love oh, that you love these Italian films and Gialli's like. Whenever I see them on your Twitter page, I'm like, oh, another film I have to add on my list to watch. So. <laughs> this is a great one. So the the director, this is his only real sort of thriller type, type film. He, mm-hmm. he They usually made um, a sort of comedy, so this is very different for him. Right. Um, but it's such a, this is a bleak film, and it's I, I think it would go really well with it. And again, the ending is, not to say open-ended, but it's not, it's not the ending that you would... 
you would think of certainly so it's uh yeah and it's a great one and the franco nero you i love i mean i know you love that nero (laughs) yeah (laughs) me too i do yeah (laughs) um i myself would pair this with oliver stone's u-turn um i feel that that movie took uh a lot of ideas and vibes from this not necessarily the Mm -hmm. same story because that's more about a guy on the road who gets stuck in a, a messed up town but again it's a road noir with a lot of colorful characters and that's why i picked this one picked u-turn because this film you've got three people you've got al you've got vera you've got haskell i don't count sue because we see you sue for like two minutes yeah uh-huh yeah where u-turn you've got again this road noir but you've got colorful character after colorful character showing up and making sean penn's life miserable so that's why i paired it with that one so you can have like your 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 very minimal bleak road noir followed by a ensemble cast of weirdos road noir to kind of like change the palette. <laughs> so that's what I picked for that. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for joining me on this today. It was a blast. I love talking about this film with you and I'm glad that more people, hopefully in your audience and my audience, discover this film. It's on YouTube. It's free. Anyone can see it. I've got a little funny story about this. Well, actually it wasn't funny funny it made me feel quite sad so i looked it up it's the film is on amazon uh, uh, prime over here uh-huh. and i was like oh 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 yeah great i'm gonna watch that um i watched a minute of that version because it is colorized oh no and i was oh it was awful it was like oh no i'm not watching this this is this is just awful so yeah you can thank ted turner for that over here colorizing all those films back in the 80s yeah so so that swiftly got their switched off and i did watch it on <laughs> um um there you YouTube. youtube so so if if you haven't watched it and you've listened to us why haven't you watched it go out and watch it exactly um, but yeah please do it's it is well worth it and it's 66 minutes it's, it's not a, a fast it's, movie it goes by nice it is and quickly. indeed yeah <laughs> so uh do you want to shout out your your socials where people can find your podcast really fast sure yeah so um any any sort of um their platform that there is so any sort of podcast socials i'm quite lazy so really <laughs> uh, their twitter is my main one uh, Instagram now and then, but um, I can't really be bothered with it. So the Twitter is where you will find me mostly. Um, I am at uh, Connections uh, Cult, so it's uh, so it's turned round. Round, so yeah. It's not, it's not, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, find me there. I'm very active. Yeah, and I'll have a link to your show on the uh, description of my, of this podcast when it pops out. And just like the one last thing I have to say is like when you find Ian on Twitter, you will see constantly a GIF of. Franco Nero as Space Jesus <laughs> looking yeah. looking at you with his seductive blue eyes. If you don't know what that is, get onto Shudder, get onto Tubi, get onto YouTube, seek out the film The Visitor and watch it and you will understand yeah. what Space Jesus is all about. Oh, please do. I mean, um, <laughs> to be honest, Space Jesus is only in it very, very briefly, but um, Franco Nero as... as 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 this sort of character it's 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 a brilliant film again it is a italian film um but it's absolutely brilliant just uh it is bonkers agree a hundred percent um yeah. have you already deep dived on that one with a guest uh no 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 i need to no but that's an interesting one i need to find something similar and um I haven't really, I can't really find anything else similar to that one. It's, it's, 
it's on its own so it is on its own well <laughs> it is absolutely yeah if you ever decide to hit me up because i love talking about that movie <laughs> oh i will do don't don't you worry yet uh-huh. yeah all right well ian thank you so much for joining us so next week everyone we will be covering the sadist with melissa of the good evening kitties podcast so you can find that on youtube tubi and on shutter right now it's a great film Check it out so you have a spoiler-free experience. And Ian, I'm going to say goodbye to you. Have a great afternoon. Thank you very much. It's been absolutely brilliant.